This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2018, held at Faith Builders on July 31 to August 3. Very well. I think we will start. This is a session on the heart of teaching, if that's where you want it to be. Good. If not, you're welcome to go somewhere else. So the lungs of teaching or some other part of teaching, but this is the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing your heart. Help us, Father, as we continue, as we consider teaching, to understand what it is that we are about and to do it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the emphasis here is on the ING of teaching, the heart of teaching. That means we're not talking about lesson plans, we're not talking about uh, content, we're not talking about uh, a variety of other things we could. We're talking about uh, teaching, what it really is the, is the heart. I like the term heart because it has to do with life, the very, the very center. What is that one thing that we gather around? What's that one thing that animates us? Why should I care? Why should the students care? What, uh, what is it? And my subtitle here is Engaging with Students and Subject. My illustration here is intended to, to show that there are three parts here. There is the, the subject. Now, I like the term subject rather than content. Content suggests something that, uh, that perhaps is inert, something that has no life of its own. Whereas a subject is something that is multifaceted, it can be looked at in various ways. You can study it, and when you're finished studying it, there's still more there. There's more you could ask of it, there's more you could look at. And so we have the subject, and then we have the students who are learning, and we have the teacher. And it takes all three. And ideally, in teaching, you forget about yourself, the student forgets about himself, and we're engrossed and grows together in this subject. And the illustration one writer uses is to imagine uh, kindergarten students talking about an elephant, and they forget all about who they are, who's sitting beside them, or who asked a question, who said something last, but they're, they're engrossed with this concept of this, this elephant the squiggly trunk and the little spindly tail and the big strong legs and they're, they're full of it and they're drawn into it. And so our goal is that as we, whatever that subject is that comes before us, that we, we're drawn in it together and in spite of ourselves, we're, we, we, uh, and so the, what is this subject? The subject is God's world the world in which we live and move and have our being. We cultivate the concept, to cultivate the feel that we can't look anywhere, we can't study anything, whether it's Venetian blinds or whether it's music harmony or shoe polish and wipe sticks or whether it's uh, eyelashes and the work that they do in your eyes, anything you look at is equally fascinating. It's part of this world in which we live. 
And they're not all equally important, but they're all intriguing. And so as we look at this, I just have some illustrations here. The God's world in which we live, move, and have our being. So whether it's something in what we call science, whether it's the, the universe of a cell, or whether it's some fascinating far-off geographical historical site, there are many things to wonder about this Inca citadel in Peru. Imagine talking about that with your students. Who do you think built it? Why did you build it? What would they have done there? How did they get those stones? Do we today build anything that will last as long as that? Should we? And how did they live there? Are people still using it today? How, what's the attitude of that? I wonder what the weather's like there. Or we go to uh, Proverbs. There are, I'm just doing a little quick run around the curriculum here, saying riches bring cares. Would you like to, would you like to be rich? Would you, would you like to have a million dollars? Sure. How about a million? Yeah, take that too. Would, would you like that? Okay. Mm. I share it with you. Now, let's suppose we have that million. Uh, what about this? How does this saying apply to that if you had a million dollars? That would take care of the first part, the riches. And then what would that bring you if it brings you care? What would that mean? What, what are cares? What are cares? Uh, things that you have to worry about. Such as? Um, well, what am I going to? What, what's the best way to use this million dollars? Mm -hmm. Like, I can think of. I can think of the best way to use ten dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. That's not quite as hard. But a million dollars, I, I suppose I could spend it easily enough. But to do so in the best way would be very difficult. So you buy your yacht and put it in the Chesapeake Bay, and then a hurricane is coming. Now what? What are you going to do with this yacht? Is it going to sink? You're going to take care of it. A cabin in the mountains. Uh, you take care of it, and so, uh, or it's another. So. Look at, look at this thing. If you, if you turn this wheel this way, which way will this wheel go? Which way will it go? And, and why? And why? And then we go into the whole world of Mathematics, that's the language God has made, the language of mathematics. And there are things to understand about that. So wherever we go, and then, if that's not enough, then we go to the life of people. Now that's really where it's at. People. Can anybody recognize anybody on here? Who, does anybody have any idea who this is? Who's that guy? Thomas Edison. I think it's Thomas Edison. What about this one? Gandhi. Gandhi. What about this one? Stalin. Stalin, right. And each one of these faces, what about this one? This fellow here. I think it's Ralph Waldo. But every one of those faces, there's a story associated with that. The lives of people who lived on this earth are intriguing. And as we think of that, as we're going to teach, first of all, I have a few blanks. There are two kinds of teachers. Those that give children blanks to fill and those who don't. 
and I'm in the middle. Sometimes I get blanks, and sometimes I don't. Uh, sometimes you're in the workshop, you say, not another paper with blanks, and then the next person says, give me some blanks to fill so I can stay awake. So I gave you a few. So some of you will be happy at least. Anyway, a teacher has, uh, a teacher needs vision. And one of my visions is this, that in a sense, I'm like the executor of a will. A will is a document that someone writes that goes into effect after he dies. And that will will something to somebody. This form is yours, that house is yours, this property becomes yours. It's to it's will to you. Now, some things require work to receive or to possess. And so there's a sense in which children have many things that belong to them. This is for you. This, for example, in history, this is your story. Let's take on a Baptist history, for example. If you don't know your story, you don't know who you are. Children often say to daddy, tell me about when you were a little boy. And they kind of like stories about when daddy was a little boy, because what they're really saying is, please give me my history. I need to know something about things in the past. And so that's just one aspect of it. But there are many things that belong to you. It is, it's yours to understand something about mathematics, something about the land in which you live, something about the otherness of other people and other places. Do you know people didn't always think like we think? Do you know there is another way of thinking? This morning when he was speaking about uh, the eye, the uh, uh, communication, it just struck me that actually we are developing a new, a new language. And I'm, I'm breaking some new ground here. I'm, I'm telling you something I, I just thought about. And this is something that teachers need to do. Your students need to know that you think and that you think things sometimes that you never thought before. I usually recognize when I think something I never thought before. And this I never thought about before, even though it's, it should be self, somewhat self-evident. They say that, I don't understand German, but they say that there's some things you just can't say in English. The, the vocabulary and the phrasing, that just isn't there to carry the thought. Any, any amens, anybody? Anybody understand that? Okay, I'll stay a few hands. And then other people, then I've heard uh, some uh, colony Mennonites in Mexico say that they, they actually preach in Platt Deutsch. But they said when they want to preach in the Platt Deutsch, the, the language, it just doesn't have some of the terms or phrases that they need in order to, to express what they see in the scriptures, in the German scriptures or the Spanish scriptures or the English. So they have to kind of teach their people maybe a new term or maybe invent one so that they, that they can communicate what they want to communicate. Now, not to go too far on that, but the point I want to make is that if we were actually inventing a new language, so these little IDKs and so forth, uh, as we get in this new language, some of the ways of thinking that we used when we spoke English will not be able to be transferred into this new language. You'll, some of that will be left behind as we go into the electronic world. And so if we want to have the new generation understand some of the things we understood, we're going to have to figure out a way to communicate that in that language. 
that's an example of uh, <laughs> a challenge that we face. So, do you have a vision of what your students, what belongs to them, and when it gets into the area of, of science and uh, history, who's to say how much is enough? Do students really need to understand the difference between Newton's first law and second law, of, uh, or first and second class levers? Well, you can get through life without knowing those names. But there's, there's something, it isn't so much how much we know, but that we know something and that it lives. Then, if we have a vision of what we're going to teach in a particular lesson, then we want, uh, we need some kind of a goal. In any particular lesson that you're teaching, you need to know very clearly what is it that I'm wanting my students to either understand, what skill should they develop, which should they be able to do at the end of this lesson that they can't do now, or which should they understand, or which should they know now, or, and here's the top one, what should they appreciate at the end of this unit that they now don't appreciate? How do you encourage somebody to appreciate something? You can't do that just by explaining, but you do want to try. And then you've got to use some imagination. How on earth am I going to go about reaching this goal? How can I do this? Do I say, turn to page 16, do numbers one to 10? Well, that's simple enough. Maybe in a few cases, that's all it takes. But in general, it takes more than that. And then last but not least, it takes the skill. How do you actually carry this out? So we have a vision, and that's the big picture. The goal for the particular lesson, imagination and skill. By the way, uh, if you have any uh, comment or question, just stop and ask. This is not intended to be entirely monologue. Teaching is intensely personal. Teaching is very personal, if it's going to be effective teaching. It involves interaction with persons, with persons. And first of all, with the person of God. How do you interact with the person of God in studying common denominators? You're teaching children how to find common denominators between fourths and eighths, for example. How do you interact with the person of God? That's a real question. I'm asking you. I'm, are we saying that, that fractions are God? Pardon? God has set in place the rules for fractions. Mm -hmm. Yes, the very, the very ability to think mathematically and to think of fractions and to uncover and discover the laws that apply that this can be done. It's the, it's the idea that wherever we turn, we're working in God's living room, so to speak. We're working with his materials. 
and he has he has put them there and the works of the Lord are great and so yes God does not show up in person in that shining light burning light like Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 but he has he has put everything there and when we manipulate and work with his creation we're interacting with the handiwork of God and the when you learn about a person you primarily learn about him by what that person does I can't really tell much about you by looking at your photograph or just looking at your face but if I hear you talk see you act watch you play volleyball a little bit uh, watch what happens when somebody punches you on the arm. Uh, a few other things I see you inter interacting. Or if I look, if I uh, go to your study desk or look at your teacher's desk, uh, pull the door open and look at it, or look in your uh, purse, or look on the right front seat of your car, assuming that nobody normally rides there, um, that tells me something about you by the way you handle your stuff, your, your things. You, you, you tell somebody, if they walk in your house and just check out your living room and your basement and the garage and the storage spaces, they can, they can uh, appropriately infer some things about you. And that is the primary way that in our school subjects we're learning something about God. So we are interacting with them. And then there is, it involves the person of the teacher. Students find out very quickly, who is this person? Who is this person of the teacher? And we can have, we can put on a, a role-playing front. Now, boys and girls, today we will give our attention to the difference between uh, prime numbers and composite numbers. Let's turn to page 16, and would you read the first definition? And uh, the students wonder, sooner or later they wonder, who is this person that's talking to us? Is there anybody home? Uh, we don't know yet, and so somebody. How do you? How, how do students go go about finding out who the person is, the person of the teacher? How do they find that out? You tell me. Do it by trying you out, see how you react to things. Mm -hmm. Somebody will do something. At some point, somebody. <coughs> <clears throat> they'll clear the throat loud and, or they'll poke somebody or um, paper water will fly or they'll give some kind of that's a dumb question or something to, to have you break out of your scripted little awkward role playing and so that you have to respond as a person and then they find out who this person is now if you are a person from the beginning now I'm saying you are a teacher and a person but you need to relate to your students as a person, not just as uh, some kind of stiff form. Now, several things about the, about the teacher. The teacher knows and cares about the subject. Both of those are important. Students soon find out whether or not you know the subject. Now that doesn't mean that you need to, to know a uh, voluminous amount about it, 
But if we don't understand either how to teach or don't know the subject, they soon find it out. But actually, the one that's probably more, just as important is this word care here. We sometimes wonder about motivated students. Why don't my students care more? Why aren't they more motivated? Well, the first question I have is, do you care? And why should you care about the difference between the temperature, the average summer temperature in Rwanda and in South Africa? Why would anybody care about that? Now, I just threw that out as something. But when you look at a particular lesson or a particular unit, sometimes the biggest challenge is for the teacher to care. If you don't care, do you expect your students to care? Now, I'm not suggesting that, that you uh, think each thing is, is on the top of the chart is being important. But how do you, do you care? Do you see the significance? And along with that goes knowing and caring about the student. And I would maintain that number one and number two are equally important. It's, it's foolish to try to separate them. In school, when we're teaching, Obviously, people are the most are the more important, but we're not talking. That's really not the question. We're talking about about doing school here, about the uh, the the teaching, and so you need to to somewhat know your students and care about them, and then the teacher informs. And the word informs is really a rich word. It means much more than dumping information in. It means forming. Inside, there's an informing, there's a forming of the mind. The mind is furnished. The scriptures talk about uh, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. But you know, it says the beginning. And we normally, beginnings are good places to start, but we don't park there. We, we go on. And then it talks about furnishing. And so, informing the mind. When I think of informing the mind, I'm not thinking about facts, about dumping facts. We're talking about learning things and informing and molding the minds and the hearts of students as they engage. And a key word here is engage. How do you actually engage the subject together through enjoyment and hard work? Is learning fun? I can't see your name there, but you. Is learning fun? Can be. It can be. Is it supposed to be fun? What about that? This is fun, boys and girls. Let's learn this. How, how, how do you know if learning is fun? Because the teacher told you? Or how do you find it out if it is? Pardon? That's how the teacher presents it. Could be. Yes, and if learning is going to be fun, what makes it fun? Is it the dance the teacher does? Some teachers attempt to hype up the learning. This is fun, and they, they go through their song and dance, and some students can watch with rapt attention 
and you think they're really engaged with the subject, but what they're really engaged with is how fascinating it is to watch you. And they're thinking about how, how, how this is that somebody could be so interested in something and they might not, might not be thinking about the subject at all. Well, if something is fun, you, you find out that it was fun, you probably aren't even thinking much about it at the time, but when you're finished, you say, that, that was kind of fun. And, but learning is, is hard. Do you know students or children will really work hard to play? The work they go through when they play, if they had to work that hard, I remember making tunnels in the Haymow years ago, and uh, my cousins and I actually dug down. This was, uh, it had about uh, 18 layers of hay bales. It was one and a half times as high as the ceiling. And we decided to root in the middle of the hay mouth, root the whole way down to the floor, excavating bales and then making various layers of, of tunnels in there. And a lot of hard, sweaty work, all in fun, harder than we would have worked if we'd been unloading hay. And hard, hard work can be very invigorating. And so the it isn't, it isn't front-loaded, it isn't fun necessarily at the front end. But as you dig, as you dig, either, whether it's to master a skill in doing something or whether it's to try to understand something, there is uh, a degree of enjoyment. Now, students. In the heart of teaching, students draw virtue from teachers. I used the word there. Jesus said in the King James, I felt virtue go out. Who's, who's taught in here? Who's taught, uh, who's just starting to teach? Anybody who hasn't taught yet? All right. Who's taught one year? Who's taught five or more years? Okay. Uh, what does this mean that students draw virtue from teachers? Does, do students draw anything out of, out of a teacher? Um, did you say you taught five years or more? What? This is my first year. Pardon? This is my first year. Okay, but behind you there. Yes, what does this mean? They draw virtue out of teachers. Do you ever get tired? Mm -hmm. They draw energy from you. They draw energy from you. How, how so? Talk about it. What? Is it because you have to talk or explain? Or what, what is it? Mm -hmm. And so, doing so, they can gain from that in learning. Mm -hmm. Right. It uh, <clears throat> teaching. I remember an older teacher, uh, Lester uh, Lester Showwater, was in, in Maryland. He was older. His son was still living at home, and his son started teaching. He was in his low twenties. And one day after school, his son came home from school. Lester was already home and collapsed on the couch. And Lester kind of smiles, are you tired? like, <laughs> all you're doing is teaching all day. And of course, he was joking about it. But it's amazing how tired you can get teaching. Students draw, they, they suck from you emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, whatever, you, you name it. There, there is something that they draw out. If you're, now, there are various kinds of, of uh, there, there's a good kind of tiredness at the end of the day when you work hard and you simply need to rest. By the way, if nobody ever told you, one of, the, one of the simple pieces of advice for a teacher is when you're tired, go to bed. 
It's amazing what a clear head and a night's rest can do. But then there's another kind of tiredness that enervates you, that at the end of the day you're down, the next morning you're still down, then the next day you're down further, at the end of the year you're the basket case and ready to quit. And so their students actually do draw from the teacher and students respond like clay. Clay is something that uh, I've not worked much with it, but they say that a potter, as he starts working with a piece of clay, sometimes he might have the intention of making a vase that's with thin sides and a, a thin neck and that's tall, and he gets to work with his clay and he realizes, nope, I can't make a vase with this clay. This clay is not going to be able to sh be shaped into a vase, but I might be able to make a bowl. So he makes a thicker bowl rounded, and that works fine. Then he gets to another piece, and it responds differently. Clay responds. Has anybody ever, anybody ever worked with clay here? Is it, does that make any sense? Tell us about it. What, 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 what have you made with clay? Things like that, just figuring Okay. Mm -hmm. And so students respond. What a, the thought here is that students are individuals, they are people, and they're not generic. There's something that's very common in students all over the world, and you can count on it. But then they are also individuals. And as you get to working with the nitty-gritty, especially trying to have them understand something, why they, they respond differently as individuals. Another one is that students by nature resist work. They resist concentration or domination. Let me talk a bit about each of those three. By nature, students resist work. It's, it's just a human condition. It's easier to not work than it is to work. Now, playing is a different story. You, you'll work hard when, when you play, but by and large, most people don't work unless they have to. And that probably includes most of us. Work is something that you can learn to enjoy, but, but let's face it, if you didn't have to, if you didn't have to uh, do it, you probably wouldn't do it. And so, Students are going to need you to somehow cause them to work. And they know that. And they will respect you if you make them work. If you can get them to work. A teacher, in some sense, is a catalyst. A catalyst is something that's, in a, in a chemical process, the process won't happen unless the catalyst is there. You can have fuel in this room, can have oxygen in this room, but you have to have enough heat to get a fire started. Once it's started, then it will burn, and you can take your, your heat-producing uh, thing away somewhere else and go somewhere else. And so you can have students in a room, you can have uh, materials in a room, whether it's a video class or whatever. If the teacher isn't present or isn't engaged, the students in general don't learn. You try walking out of the room, usually the learning level starts to drop off. Just 
there's something about you being there engaged with them that causes them to work. And I like the illustration, if you haven't read it, why it's a delightful little children's story called Former Palmer's Wagon Ride. And in this story, there's uh, the characters in the story are animals, and Former Palmer is a pig, and, uh, and then he has a mule pulling, pulling a wagon. They're coming home on a really hot summer day, really sultry, and the mule is walking along, and he gets tired, so he stops. And uh, Farmer Palmer says to him, what's, what's, what's wrong? So I don't really feel like going on. Oh, Palmer said. And so they talked about it a bit. And then eventually the, uh, the mule said, you know, if you give me a little switch with your whip, maybe that would help. And so Farmer Palmer said, all right. So he took the switch and cracked it over his back. There, that's better. Then he started walking again. And uh, there's something very basic about that to human nature. Children, children need someone to cause them to work. And they will respect those who cause them to dig in and work. And there's, how do you do that? There are various ways uh, to do that. Another, the, the next point uh, to comment on is this concentration. They resist concentration. Their minds go here. And there, and so does yours, as I'm talking. Your minds are, uh, each of you told the stories of where your minds went in the last uh, 20 minutes. It'd be very interesting storytelling. Uh, they go anywhere from here to Alberta to who knows where uh, during, uh, during class. And sometimes, sometimes that uh, wandering is not all that unproductive. I remember a student years ago who got this little glint in his eye and knew he was thinking about something and I don't know what our class was, I'm just guessing we might have been studying some grammar. And I said, Andrew, what did you uh, think about it? Well, he said, I just realized how you could walk across the ocean. Oh, tell me about it. Well, his, the essence of what he said was something like this. You picture yourself being on a, on a ship, and the ship is headed towards, towards Ireland, and the ship's going, let's say, five miles an hour in driving. So you go to the back of the ship and turn around and you walk to the front. As you walk to the front, you're going 10 miles an hour because you're walking five and the ship's going five. Then you turn around and keep walking five miles an hour and now you're standing still because the ship's going five miles an hour under you and you're going five miles an hour that way. After I get to the back of the ship, then you turn around and walk forwards. You repeat that process until the ship gets to Ireland and you have walked the whole way. And he thought about that while we were discussing something else. And so I don't know what prompted him to think that, but uh, it was an interesting and uh, somewhat productive thought. And he had a chance to share that with us. But that does work against concentration. And you ask a student a question sometimes, it says, uh, you ask a question, and uh, I ask you a question that you're not sure, and then I ask you, and you say, what was the question? Because you never heard the question. Your mind was somewhere else. And so how do you keep students, how do you get students to concentrate on whatever it is that you're doing? In the back there. See, is it Kip? Patrick. Pardon? Patrick. Patrick. How do you keep students concentrated on the lesson? Unless, not uh, necessarily on you, but on the lesson. Any idea? Limiting distractions around them. Uh, how do you do that? 
uh, <laughs> wondering how much students can, like, in some study hall, maybe, uh, wondering how much they can, or what they can talk to a partner about if they need help on something. Or... What about internal distractions? You know, there are internal distractions, too. These, these interesting faults that come. How do you... Any, any thoughts? Or is this new to you? Do you, do you uh... Tell them to tell you what's going through their brain so it gets out and they can get back to the first. You might have all the hands up. If you're teaching second grade, why you'll have all the hands up. I thought about this, teacher, I thought about that. Um, Engaging the emotions is very effective. Mm -hmm. um, if, you can, uh, if you can cause students to, to feel things mm -hmm. instead of just hearing the information, like, uh, there's an activity I do with my 9th and 10th graders. Uh, we do uh, a World War One simulation, essentially. It's a type of role-playing game, essentially. And it's amazing because, uh, because they end up feeling all the feelings that you feel when you're in charge of a European country in the lead-up to World War One. Um, and... Uh, I think they learn about World War One much more effectively that way than if I just told them stuff or assigned them to read things or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes uh, you can you can uh, focus on something by depending what the depending what the lesson is by making a statement or or uh, if it fits with the lesson that really captures the imagination. For example. It could be maybe you're studying uh, physical science, and you're studying the fact that uh, when uh, when two things collide, like there's energy goes both both ways, like a little ball thing. Here. Automobile accident, two cars hit, where they both bounce a little. So, uh, and then so you could point out that so if you bounce a ball on the Earth, why uh, there's a reaction, the ball comes up, but then the Earth moves a little bit the other way. Too, because there's a reaction. Unless somebody is right on the other side of the Earth and bounces the ball exactly at the same time, then the Earth doesn't move and they say, what? And now you have, there's a puzzle there, no, I don't believe you. Or, or maybe it's the tire going down the road thing. When you go down the road a 70 miles an hour in your car, why there's part of the car that's not moving relative to the, to the ground. Which part is that? And uh, you tell them the part of the tire that's against the road is always standing still. And no matter how fast you go. Because if it wouldn't be, you would hear a tremendous and your smoke would be flying and the rubber would be smoking and you'd roll the tire through. So it's gotta be standing still. And you wonder, what you mean? And then, and then you, you take off from there with, with your lesson. And so sometimes it's something like that. Uh, in physical science, it's particularly easy, for example, when you, you know, whoever, whoever used a straw to, uh, to drink something. Anybody in here who used a straw? Right. Whoever, whoever sucked something up with a straw, put that way. Well, the fact is, you, you never sucked anything up. It's always pushed up through the straw into your mouth. And you, you, uh, 
cast something in that term, somehow if you can present the, something that has to do with a lesson. And that really is now what this lesson is about. And that has to do with, with the vision and, and the goal. Now, here's another one. Students naturally resist domination. What do I mean by that? Students do not want to be dominated. I see a smile there. What do you What do you think? They like to be in charge. Pardon? They like to be in charge. They like to be in charge. Well, but they know that the teacher's in charge and of the room. Most of them accept that, but there's something a little more about this. They, they want to be partners. What does that mean? Um, to they they want uh, the teacher to work with them rather than. Um, uh, rather than, um, oh, I'm not thinking of a good word here, I'm sorry. Um, instead of um, treating them like slaves, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, here is a task that, um, that you must do for me. Um, and, instead, they want, they want us to work with them to accomplish something ultimately for their benefit. Mm -hmm. I just got this, this image of, uh, I wonder what Peter would feel like if I, suppose I wanted you to look at that plane over there. If I walked over and took a hold of your head and said, now, turn your head now, look at that. Uh, you know, physically turn your head. See, there, look at that. How would you feel? Somebody tell me, how, how would you feel? Or if I took your finger and said, there, point at that. Now, now, now. See, how would you feel? Come on. Thank you. I agree. Why? For the domination of the Making me do something that I can obviously not But suppose you're not seeing it. <laughs> um, students, they may want to think something, to understand something, but Part of this has to do with a stance. Part of it is a feel. There's a big difference whether I feel as though I am here with you, and we're looking at that thing together, and we look at that, and we're now somebody's looking at me, and I suppose and and we're doing this together, and in a sense, you forget about about me, and so somehow, and this really comes into play when you want your students to think something about something. We shouldn't feel this way, we shouldn't believe this, or this isn't good poetry, or this is good poetry, or this is good music, this is bad art, this is whatever. And they know very well, you know, this is what I'm supposed to think, this is what I do think, or whatever, and uh, they, they don't want to be made uh, clones out of. Well, Teachers, uh, students respect teachers who know and care about the subject. Notice that I said teachers should know and care about the subject. Students have very good radar, very good, whatever you want to call x-ray, and they have a very good sense of knowing whether or not you care or whether this is something that we have to do. They know it by the amount of time you give to it, whether you always drop it, if, you, if there's a way you can avoid dropping it, or whatever. And they respect teachers who know how to teach the subject. 
How do you teach a subject that you don't know? How do you teach a subject that you don't understand? Is there any way to redeem yourself? Here's the book. And you turn to the next chapter in science and it's about electricity and you don't have a clue. But it's in the book. So you don't know the subject. Can you still care? Possibly. Who's ever had to teach something that you didn't have a very good grasp of? How did you, how do you go about it? What do you do? Yes. I sent them back to their seat and say, "Give me some time. I want to study this." Okay. Mm-hmm. Either that, or I tell them, "Let's try and figure this out together. And see who gets the right answer first. Okay. Yes. There's when you don't. It's it's good. Don't try to cover it up and act like you master. What about you, Patrick? What do you? Would you I, I would do something sort of the same, work it, work it, kind of work it out with the students. Mm-hmm. Um, or say, hey, we're just going to come back to this tomorrow, let's move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you switch modes. It's a world of, di- world of difference. If you've been there and done that, and you're familiar with this, you can present it, and you know it so well that you can do it like a tour guide. You're doing like the tour guide mode to say, now... Uh, in, in this, maybe it's an era of history, for example. And you, it's a bit like introducing your young friends to your old friends. So you know the story, you know this material, and you know that I, you know that this class will find this interesting. And that's one of my favorite metaphors for teaching, is uh, introducing friends to each other, old friends and young friends. So there's, there's a poem that you just, you'd really know. It might be, for example, a line from... Uh, from uh, Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha. It goes something like this. As unto the bow the cord is, so is the wife to the husband. Though she, uh, though she, um, though she, though she bends him, he draws her. Each, each is useless without the other. I'm not quite getting it quoted right, but it's a wonderful, wonderful little parallel of comparing the, the bow and arrow, no, excuse me, the bow and the string to the husband and wife. The string, uh, the string follows the bow, but, the, but, but bends the bow. And you, if you know your group and you know the poem, you can... You can introduce it, or let me give you a, a, a simpler one. This is a motto for a doghouse. A little motto you put above a doghouse. I love this little house because it offers, after dark, a pause for rest, a rest for pause, a place to mourn my heart. I'll, read, I'll say it once again. <clears throat> I love this little house because it offers after dark a pause for rest. A restful pause, a place to moor my blood. And if you, if your students get that, you might have to see it in print. They will, uh, they will enjoy it. Now, if you don't know the subject, then you can switch into adventure mode. If you're in adventure mode. 
picture yourself leading a group of, of well, hikers out somewhere where you've never been before. So you're getting into new territory. But there are still ways that you can be a leader because you still know certain ways to approach this. And you say, you know, I don't really know what's ahead here. I don't know if we're going to have to ford creek. I don't know if there's going to be a hill. Let's find out. And so you go in it together. So you can uh, do that. So know how to teach. So this, this might involve not just mastering the subject, but knowing how to go about it. Does it involve them doing some work? Does it involve storytelling? Uh, they respect somebody who cares about them, and they do want to be mastered. What's the difference between being dominated and being mastered? Am I contradicting myself there? What does that mean? Students, students respect teachers who can master them. Is that true? You might have read stories of Jesse Stewart and so the Who's Your Schoolmaster where, where a student came back to school to beat up the teacher and when the teacher could win the fight, the student respected him after that. Students Students need to know that you're in charge, and in charge in a variety of ways. <clears throat> and if you're not, they, they have difficulty respecting you. I have this quote. <clears throat> Let's read this together. I love you not only for what you are, but for what I am when I am with you. I love you not only for what you have made of yourself, but for what you are making of me. I love you for the part of me that you bring out. Quote from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Students, as they grow under your tutelage, they will love that experience. They will appreciate that experience. And it's a wonderful experience to have together. Let's uh, move on here. Teaching facilitates learning that requires a teacher. There is a learning that students can do on their own, but there is other learning that, that just needs a teacher. I uh, talked to someone uh, in the last five years. He was very interested in uh, soil science and math, and he was a great learner. He read a lot of things, but he said, you know, I, I reached a point that I knew I was going to have to have a teacher to get beyond where I, where I was. And there, there are things that, uh, that you just can't learn without a teacher. How can I accept some man help me, the uh, uh, man told Philip. And so there is learning that requires a teacher. Teaching is deliberate, it's conscious, it's planned, but it is not mechanical. It's really an art, which is a big subject in itself. It's not mechanical. Uh, teaching effect, <laughs> let me say a bit more about that. Students aren't machines. Somebody's home. They're people. And they respond. And we respond. Someone has used the illustration that uh, in the classroom is one time, especially teachers, when, when you learn what, uh, something about dancing. I don't know much about dancing. I know the term. I looked up in the dictionary. But 
I understand the concept that your next move depends on that person's move. And you don't really know what your next move is going to be. Because you, you suggest something, and the way a student responds or doesn't respond predicts, not doesn't predict, it calls for your next move. If they get it, you move on. If they don't get it, if they ask a question, this person does that, you have to shift here, there, and it depends on how they, on how they respond. That's why it can't be mechanical. So you don't know how they're going to respond. They're not machines. And it affects students in a variety of ways. Teaching affects students' habits. The way students uh, write, their handwriting that they will have for life will be greatly affected by you as a teacher. The way they make many habits they, they pick up in the classroom. Attitudes are often set in the classroom. Attitudes towards the subject, attitudes towards people, attitudes towards the Japanese in the Second World War, uh, you name it. Attitudes often are set in the classroom. We think of things like skills, obviously, but uh, their opinions, their aspirations, and there's a huge one, their aspirations, what they aspire to do is often affected by what happens in the classroom. If we're going to be effective teachers, we're going to engage their minds and their wills and their emotions. Feelings are huge. If students feel like it or don't feel like it, that has a huge effect on what they will accomplish or not accomplish. And we seek to motivate students uh, to use their wills to engage their hearts. This is a huge uh, challenge, you want the students to do what they do by their wills, by their own wills. And animates the teacher. Teaching, Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And it, animate, it animates the teacher herself. And last of all, uses many tools, many methods which must fit the subject and the students and the teacher. And then there's this uh, quote I like, that the personality of the teacher and the method are complementary each to the other. Only, whatever method that you choose, only as that method is the living expression of the personality of the teacher does it vitally affect the learning of pupils. That is, if the method doesn't fit you, it probably will not be very effective. And then, uh, bring us back to the little illustration, whatever subject it is. And I like this illustration because the teach, the the subject here has something to do with the with the earth, with the globe, and the teacher is putting something out, and those children are all looking at it, and they're all having having an experience. But each of them is having a slightly different experience. I'm guessing that one of those three girls is focused on something that she found intriguing and might not be listening at the moment to what the teacher's pointing out. Which one do you, am I thinking of? On my side? Yes, that's, I would guess. She's, she's noticed something there. She may or may not hear what she's saying. 
Now, I'm guessing that one of these two girls here is more focused on having a, an experience with the teacher than she is about anything the teacher's talking about. She's having warm fuzzies by doing something with the teacher. Which one of the two? She's thinking more about how good this is to do something with the teacher than she is about the globe. Which one am I thinking of? The one in the middle. One in the middle? Yeah, yeah this one? Yeah. Well, that's my guess, right. And this one, I think, is kind of looking at focus. Now, this, you see, this one's looking there, too. But uh, now I simply, and that's okay. That's when, when you're with a group, their experiences are slightly different. But, but what I think this picture illustrates is that the, all, all of them, I think, are focused on the subject. They're in it together. Now, teaching requires skills, the ability to actually do it, and so forth. I'd like to move on to some examples. And I just want to call your attention to this list. When you want to teach something, there's a whole variety of tools and methods to use. And we won't talk about them, because I'd like to move right in now to and I'll go past this again. And let's go to a couple of samples here. So, there we are. Suppose your, your goal here is to teach uh, place value. How do you go about, first of all, how would you, how would you care about place value? What, uh, we talked about caring, first of all. Why does anybody care about place value? Is that important? Is it fun? Or how do you how do you get started with this? You got eight kids and there's ten pieces of pie. I forget how many pieces of pie each person gets. Okay. Perhaps. If I were thinking about teaching place value, uh, we have the first place, uh, the second, and the third. I would, at this age, where they're studying this concept, you would uh, think of getting objects, actual objects to, to use, or at least diagrams or, or drawings. And so you, you have the units here on one side. This is one, and then so this is one, one. By the way, when you have a number, it's, there's no such thing as one. It's one something, one chair, one cow, one house, one something, one, one piece. So this is, this is one, and it's just one unit. But here, if I have a stack, this is also one. But it has 10 units in it. It's one group of 10. Picture this is something, it's 10. And then here is one of these. And this thing has 100 units in it. But you put a string around the whole thing and you have 100. So this is one, 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 uh, one unit. This is one that has 10 in it. And so you have to somehow wrap your mind around that. And then you would think maybe a chart like this. And so this is six ones and this is eight uh, tens. It's actually eight things, eight tens. And this is three hundreds. And that's only one thousand. Uh, so it's, this really is only one something, one thousand. And so you have to, when I talk about vision, you have to think, do you see how 
this could be understood and explained. Uh, and the first challenge is for the teacher herself to quote, uh, to get it, to, for it to uh, make sense. Let's move to something else. Suppose you're going into a story analysis <clears throat> and we want to know the difference between a plot and a theme. The plot is a plan of action. Everybody say that. The theme is the subject of the story. Ready for the quiz? <laughs> What's the difference? Well, let's take the boy who cried wolf. You know the story. And so the plot would be a sheep herder repeatedly raises a false wolf alarm. When the wolf does come, the villagers don't respond, the wolf gets a sheep. That's a plot. Here's the theme. There's no believing a liar even when he speaks the truth. The theme is what it's about. So, let's try it. Here's a story. Let's read it together. Careful, Fabian, his guardian angel whispered over his shoulder. It is decreed that the moment you say, Doyen, you shall die. Doyen, said Fabian. And he died. Okay, what's the plot? What happened? What's, what's the plan of action? What did somebody the guardian angel told Fabian that as soon as he said Doyen, he died. And Fabian questioned this by saying a word, and then he died. <laughs> and your, your, your plot statement was longer than the story. <laughs> <laughs> What's the theme? By the way, let me ask you this. Uh, how many of you feel sorry? Now, don't look around. Okay, I almost always say close your eyes. How many of you feel sorry for Fabian? Uh, who doesn't feel sorry for Fabian? <laughs> That's, it always comes out this way. Some of you say, I don't feel sorry for him. And this would be a wonderful discussion if we had time for it. Um, so this is one of you, tell me why, why don't you feel sorry for him? Well, he made his own choices and he chose to die. He chose to die, so he deserves it. <laughs> who, feels, who feels sorry for him? Why? Way back there. Because when you're questioning, I mean, the, the word is not, the, the, whatever that is, is not a word, at least not in my, my vocabulary. Yeah. And so if someone would say that, my natural reaction would be to say, why am And if I'm going to die because I'm trying to clarify the word that I'm not okay. supposed to say, I shouldn't be dying for that. <laughs> so poor fella. He said, oh, this is important. I have to be sure I get this right. I don't want to die. Did you say, it's a doyen boy? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, the man dies, but he doesn't say it's a big word. <laughs> okay, there's a couple themes. There's a couple themes in here. When things are serious, we want to be sure we're careful. We can get in trouble even trying to be careful. So, um, a couple quick examples here of how to get to the heart of a lesson. Let's go to a different subject. Uh, <clears throat> uh, actually, uh, <clears throat> let me give you three little poems, okay? Gentle breeze brushes the oak whispers back. What happens here is that this is the seven words and the action comes this way. Gentle breeze brushes the oak. And then this thing flips and becomes a subject the oak whispers back. Nosy puppy smelled the skunk, sprayed him. General Jesus calls my heart and says, careful. If you had time, which we don't, it would be fun to actually, for you to write some of using this pattern. And that can be done. 
That's one of the motivations for students is to give them something to do that they can do and then uh, see what they come up with. Here's one, science, levers. Uh, first class lever, the seesaw, practical use. Second class is your wheelbarrow. Third class is the, uh, <clears throat> the lever, the, uh, the, the uh, <coughs> hoe or the fishing rod. There's some, some in everyday life. Now, the question is, do we have all three classes in our bodies? Does your skeleton have a first, a second, a third class level? It's an example of the, that can capture the student's attention. And the fact is that they do. And there they are. You've got the first class lever, everybody say yes. First class, mm -hmm. And second class, go like this. No, excuse me, that's the third class, this. And the, the uh, second class is the one you use when you leave the room, it's, uh, when you go like this. All right, uh, let me finish by, this is a memory thing. You all know this, the, uh, the five states that border the U.S.? Let's say them quickly. Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas. Ready? This is Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Coahuila, Tamaulipas. Okay. Uh, sometimes spirited, spirited learning can go. Uh, All right. Sorry, our time is up. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.